again to Reverend Whitaker. All right, whirlwind break fast, but uh, we'll try to keep it interesting. So this talk is, is sort of continuing the theme here, but now I want to make it a little more concrete. Um, we're into this learning, this uh, Renaissance humanism reformation. We have to have schools. So this is a talk about the academies of Protestantism. I'd like to draw your attention, if you all were Dutch, you would know this by heart or have it with you, but the uh, Heidelberg Catechism and its treatment of the Ten Commandments. Question 103. What does God require in the Fourth Commandment? Fourth Commandment, think to yourself. Here's the Heidelberg Catechism's answer. First... That the ministry of the gospel and the schools be maintained. And that I, especially on the Sabbath, that is the day of rest, diligently frequent the church of God to hear his word, use the sacraments, publicly call upon the Lord and contribute to the relief of the poor. And then secondly, that all the days of my life I cease from my evil works and yield myself to the Lord to work by his Holy Spirit in me. And thus begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. That's an interesting answer, isn't it? <laughs> the fourth commandment. What does God require in it? First, that the ministry of the gospel in the schools be maintained. And then I'll go to church, and then I'll learn to live a life of Sabbath after all of that. What in the world is the, the schools doing here? Well, uh, Check out the commentary. Zacharias Ursinus, he has a commentary on the Heidelberg, free online, so Google it. You too can read this. Or if you bought the PNR version, it's a red hardback. Uh, actually reprinted by the German Reformed Church and has an introduction by uh, John Williamson Nevin, um, which later, uh, later publishers have redacted offensive portions of, which is hilarious. Um, but that's anyway, that's how we get this commentary. And you read it, and Ursinus says, the schools have to be maintained to honor the ministry. And then he says, um, embraced under this part is the honor which is due to the ministry. For unless the arts and sciences be taught, men can neither become properly qualified to teach, nor can the purity of doctrine be preserved and defended against the assaults of heretics. So you can't be qualified to teach or preserve the doctrines unless you are schooled in the arts and sciences. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, a lot of folks think, well, that's seminary. It's talking about seminary. And if you read modern English translations of the Heidelberg, they, they do kind of tilt it in that direction. They say, you know, the schools for the gospel. Um, but that's not the kind of schools that Ursinus actually taught at. It's not the kind of schools that those guys actually made. They didn't build seminaries, not in the modern world. They built universities academies, and they love to name them gymnasia. They would have the gymnasia of Strasbourg, so modeled after the ancient uh, classical institutions. And the Genevan Academy was actually a hybrid, high school and college. 
You'd start out sort of in a middle school state, and then you could continue on up to a university-style degree. We had a question earlier about the medievals, and they did a lot of good things, but the medievals did tend to limit schooling to the clergy and maybe the lawyers, the legal class. The reformers wanted to open these schools up to everyone. So when you look at the school founded in Geneva, it became a public school. They were for the preserving of the gospel, but this couldn't be done without the arts and sciences. And so we might answer Heidelberg this way. How do we keep the Sabbath? By having good churches with good pastors. And how can we have good churches and good pastors? A comprehensive liberal arts education that trains us how to be good pastors and how to recognize good pastors. Funding and founding good Christian schools, the reformers believed, was essential to preserving the ministry of the gospel. Now, I want to show you some of these schools, like concrete actual schools. Uh, but before I do that, a couple of uh, sections from our, our buddy Luther, because we have to remember, Luther was a college professor, wasn't he? When he nailed the 95 theses to the church door, that was not a dramatic revolutionary showdown. You know, we kind of retell our mythology like that. And, uh, no, no, that's actually kind of normal. You nail things to the door in order to initiate a scholarly debate, something of a bulletin board of sorts. And Luther did not know that people would take that and photocopy it, or not photocopy, you know, um, uh, <laughs> copy it by hand and then put it on the printing press and distribute it to the whole world. You know, that was kind of a surprise, and they did that. He just was starting a scholarly debate. When you get to his letter to the German nobles, again, I mentioned that earlier, um, he's asking for the reform of Christendom, but he says, we've got to fix our schools. And in that letter, it's a little shocking to read as a modern, uh, and as a modern American with all the stuff that's going on. He's actually, Luther's really critical of the church-run schools. Because they've fallen into disarray. They're dens of uh, you know, iniquity and illiteracy. And because they know all they're going to do is be clergy and monks, they don't have an incentive to branch out and serve the broader community. And so he's, he's down on the church-run schools. And he's asking the magistrates to make new good schools in Germany uh, that will help preserve what he's trying to do. He writes another letter to them um, a few years later to the councilmen of all cities of Germany that they establish and maintain Christian schools. And in that letter, he says this, let us be sure we shall not long preserve the gospel without the languages. The languages are the sheath in which the sword of the spirit is contained, the casket in which we carry this jewel, the vessel in which we hold this wine, the larder in which the food is stored. As the gospel itself says, the languages are the baskets which bear the loaves and fishes. If though through our neglect we let the languages go, we shall not only lose the gospel, but we shall also come at last to the point where we shall be unable to speak or write correct Latin 
or even German. As a proof and warning of this, let us take the wretched and woeful examples of the universities and monasteries in which men are not, are not only unlearned in the Gospels, but have corrupted the languages and the miserable folk were turned into beasts, unable to read or write correct German or Latin, and well nigh losing their natural reason to boot. Whoa. <laughs> so, get the schools going. Recover the languages. And he's mostly talking about Bible reading, but you heard in there Latin and German. Language training. It's got to be there. Um, in 1526, Luther is going to translate the Mass into German. But at the beginning, he's got this whole explanation. He doesn't want to lose the Latin Mass either. And he says, if it were in my power, in fact, the Greek and Hebrew tongue should be just as familiar as Latin. Uh, I would teach my children all of these languages, German, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Uh, I am by no means of one mind with those who would uh, only choose one language and despise all others. I would gladly raise up a generation able to be of use of Christ in foreign lands. This is really interesting. He says, this was how the Holy Ghost worked in the beginning. He did not wait till all the world should come to Jerusalem to learn Hebrew. He endowed the office of the ministry with all manner of tongues so the apostles could speak to the people wherever they went. I should prefer to follow this example. It is right that the youth should be practiced in many languages. It is for this end that the schools are established. So he wants schools to teach German youth multiple languages so they can go out into the world and evangelize. Near the end of his life, Luther writes a book on the councils. What do we think about the early church councils? And in there, he repeats a lot of his statements about schools. In summary, the schools must be second in importance only to the church. For in them, young preachers and pastors are trained. And from them emerge those who replace the ones who die. And again, don't just limit that to the seminary because he wants language and literature included in that. Now, Luther's followers listened and they made schools everywhere. Wittenberg already existed, but they transformed it and made it a thoroughly Protestant Lutheran curriculum. Leipzig and Tübingen followed shortly thereafter. The famous University of Heidelberg was actually a relative latecomer. It existed already, but it wasn't fully transformed until 1558, uh, in which it eventually became a reformed, a Calvinist Protestant university. Uh, one of Melanchthon's students, Johann Sturm, moved to Strasbourg and founded the gymnasium. If you know your classical literature, you know that's an ode to the Greek institutions. Um, you see gymnasiums, academies, and lyceums everywhere in the reformed cities. And Sturm, his gymnasium became the prototype for all of the other Protestant schools in Germany and Switzerland. When Calvin wants to make the academy in Geneva, he visits Strasbourg and takes home with him their model. Now, um, a number of faculty from a neighboring town um, 
were fired at one point. It's a great story in Lausanne, uh, Lausanne Academy. A number of the faculty are all fired. Among them is Theodore Beza. Calvin says, all right, now is my chance to form a school. I'll take all of the rejects from uh, Lausanne and bring them to Geneva. And so he gets all of them together. He follows the model of Strasbourg, and the Genevan Academy is born. It's two schools in one, Schola Privata and Schola Publica. The Schola Privata is a lower school, which was a general humanities and language training. Quickly became the most popular. Families from all over Geneva sent their children there. At one point, the academy had a total enrollment of 900 students, and that's in its early days. And not, so I shouldn't say at one point. Say at the beginning, it was able to get 900, which is not too shabby when you remember Geneva never had more than 10,000 citizens at this time in history. Tiny place by our standards. Uh, had 900 students right at the beginning. What did they teach there? Wasn't just Bible and theology. They taught Hebrew, Greek. The classical literature and languages, theology, law, and even eventually medicine. There is an early, uh, early modern medical uh, training going on in Geneva. And when you hear them talk about grammar, grammar school, you have to know what this means. When you finish the grammar curriculum at Geneva, you would have read Virgil, Cicero, Ovid, Julius Caesar, Isocrates, Livy, Xenophon, Polybius, Homer, and Demosthenes in Greek and Latin. And you would have finished that grammar school by high school. That would have been middle school, junior high age people reading those books. Not every book by those authors, but key works by those authors in the original language. In fact, uh, in some of these classes, they only spoke Latin. They would not speak French or German while at school. Geneva was a big hit, attracted students from all over Europe, and they took their learning back with them. And so you see schools popping up everywhere else. Reformation is incredibly broad, by the way, especially if we include Lutheran and Calvinist together. You're talking Scandinavia, German, Poland, um, Switzerland, parts of France, England, Scotland, Ireland. The most important humanists in Scotland were George Buchanan and Andrew Melville. Buchanan is older, and so he's about the same age as uh, you know, Calvin. and um, So he's not a student, but he gets uh, influenced and becomes Calvinistic. And he becomes friends with Theodore Beza. So Buchanan and Beza are working together. And Buchanan actually, to the great hope of many of the reformers, he became the personal tutor of King James. And the hope was he would teach King James how to be uh, you know, a, a ruler, thinker after the Genevan mind. Didn't necessarily work out. Um, Buchanan was fairly abusive to King James. We'll talk about that uh, tomorrow. Um, but that was the goal. Andrew Melville was also very important. He actually went to Geneva and taught at the academy, giving a teaching position there. Came back to Scotland and was offered positions immediately at St. Andrews and the University of Glasgow. He went on to do both. Went to Glasgow first, souped it up there, then went to uh, St. Andrews, did it there. While, um, uh, then he went to um, Aberdeen, and Aberdeen adopts a lot of his curriculum. So the great centers of learning in Scotland are coming out of 
humanist reformers influenced by Geneva. While Melville is at um, at St. Andrews, he attracts the attention of a man named Robert Rollick, who goes on to be the first principal at the University of Edinburgh. And so all of the major Scottish universities, you know, if you know anything about universities in Scotland, I mean, we've just named them, uh, Glasgow, St. Andrews, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, these are all either founded by or totally revolutionized by Scottish Calvinistic humanists. And this even happens in England. Of course, the, the schools in England are old, so they're not having to be founded. But both Oxford and Cambridge are revolutionized during the Reformation. You may or may not know this. In 1548, Peter Martyr Vermigli, he's been in Geneva, then he goes over to Heidelberg, he finally lands at Oxford. He has a teaching gig at Oxford and influences the students there. One year later, Martin Bootser takes up a position at Cambridge. So you've got Vermigli and Bootser teaching at the same time at Oxford and Cambridge. Cambridge becomes a hotbed of Puritanism, of all things. All the good Puritans went there. William Perkins, famous Puritan writer, taught at Cambridge for a number of years. And under his teaching, William Ames, John Robinson, Thomas Goodwin, Samuel Ward, James Usher, and Richard Sift all study, become Puritan activists, and take their vision across England. This increased general education as well, by the way, was good for the clergy. Um, at the time of the Reformation, it was not uncommon for the clergy to be illiterate. The reason they had these liturgies with, that you weren't allowed to deviate from, part of that was authoritarian control. Part of it was because they had to have them. People couldn't read. You couldn't just count on any given priest being able to do a service. So you're having to print it all for them. In 1620, um, only 52% of the clergy in a certain diocese had uh, degrees, formal training. By 16, and that's 1620 is kind of late, you know. I mean, the Synod of Dort has already happened by 1620. Uh, the, Luther has already come and gone by 1620. So in 1620, only 52% of the clergy in this one diocese have uh, formal education. 1640, 20 years later, the number is up to 84%. Um, the, town, the, the churches around Oxford which you think are more cosmopolitan, you know, right beside the university, had a similar situation. Um, from 1560, they had uh, 38% university graduates. So the pastors in the diocese around Oxford, only 38% of them had graduated from a formal religious training. By the time you get to 1580, it's up to 50%. By the time you get to 1640, it's 96%. So they had a dramatic impact on the ground. From 38% to 96% of your clergy having formal education in less than a century. Um, and this is how the British clergy got the reputation of being so learned. Bishop Joseph Hall says, The wonder of the world is the clergy of Britain. The clergy of Britain went on to bequeath to us many of the clergy of America, at least those early generations. 
Um, the University of England also attracted students from all over Europe and all over the world. One famous example, King James set up a scholarship particularly for refugees from Greece. And this, of course, includes Constantinople at the time. It was falling to the Turks. The Catholics were hoping they could swoop in and seize it. But the patriarch of Constantinople at the time was a very interesting man named Cyril Lucaris. He himself had went to school in Italy and visited many of the Protestant centers and came back to Constantinople something of a secret Calvinist. He wrote a confession of faith that is Calvinistic through and through. And so Lucaris needs to send his students to school. He writes letters to England. The Archbishop of Canterbury is his go-to man. King James says, I will help. And he sets up a scholarship program, and Lucaris sends two of his best students to study in England. They go to Oxford. Metrophanes Critupolos and Nathaniel Canopios. Um, Critupolos goes on to study uh, more in Germany and Switzerland, visits Geneva, then becomes the Archbishop of Alexandria. Not too shabby. Archbishop Lucaris is so grateful for the English schools teaching his students that he sends to the English king, James has died by this point, so his son Charles, the Codex Alexandrinus, which is a very important piece of early Bible scholarship, a 5th century Greek Bible in total. It becomes one of the most important sources for biblical textual criticism. It's in England because the Archbishop of Constantinople thought so highly of England. So if you are a good child of King James, you will be a fan of biblical criticism. <laughs> biblical textual criticism. Now to um, one last point here to complete the picture. We're founding schools, but the Reformed, particularly Calvin and the Scots, wanted the churches to work in harmony with the schools. They wanted the church and school to mutually support one another. And to do this, Calvin established a church office dedicated to this end um, called the office of teacher or doctor. It shows up in his commentary on Ephesians. The office is given to the church. And he says, pastors are those who have the charge of a particular flock. And then he says, I have no objection to pastors receiving the name of teachers. That's what you're going to do. A lot of people said they were the same office. Um, but it should be understood there is a distinct class of teachers who preside both in the education of pastors and in the instruction of the whole church. And so Calvin has a unique office of teacher or doctor. He also talks about this in the Institutes, book 4, 3, 4. Um, the pastor is in charge over discipline, sacraments, admonition, exhortation. The teachers are in charge of the interpretation of Scripture and the maintaining of pure and sound doctrine. But again, that includes teaching them the full breadth of arts and letters. They must preside in the instruction of the whole church. And every faculty member at the Academy of Geneva, with the exception of one, every faculty member was a member of Calvin's 
company of pastors who would meet with him to receive his teaching and training as well. This was taken to Scotland, and if you look at the second book of disciplines, this is an early book of church order, uh, mostly written by Andrew Melville, who we mentioned earlier, student of uh, at Geneva and a teacher there. They put in this office of doctor in their book of discipline. It's chapter 5. It says this, um, One of the two ordinary and perpetual functions that travail... Um, that travail in the word, so that's given to us in the Bible, is the office of doctor, who may also be called prophet, bishop, elder, or catechizer. He is the teacher of the catechism and rudiments of religion. Now, hearing that, you might think Sunday school teacher. You know, he's teaching the kids the religion. But then it continues. Under the name and office of a doctor, we comprehend also the order in schools, colleges, and universities, which has been from time to time carefully maintained, as well as among Jews and Christians and the profane nations. So, teach the churches the basics of religion and maintain schools, colleges, and universities. And again, this is Melville, so we know he did. Aberdeen, St. Andrews, Edinburgh. Um, he's founding these schools. These teachers would be men like Beza, like Robert Rollick, like Melville, Vermigli, Bootser, Calvin. Theologians who taught both the church and the school. Now, we don't know how successful that cashed out. You know, that office is largely lost today. Pretty much, if you find a Presbyterian who holds that position, he's, you know, he's just the theologian in residence somewhere. He's probably not teaching the broader community. But it's an interesting goal, is it not? To have churches that are so supportive of the schools that they actually have officers entrusted with creating, maintaining, and overseeing schools. And again, remember of the Heidelberg, remember Luther. You had to do this if you're going to maintain the ministry of the gospel long term. What was the downfall of the mainline churches? You've read your Machen and others. Why did all the churches go bad? All the pastors lost their, their tools, right? Why? What happened? They went off to bad schools. They went off to faithless schools which taught them to doubt and apostatize and they came home and imparted that to their churches. The fundamentalists, the conservatives, evangelicals fought back, but by and large, especially in the South, this turned into laity verse clergy. And so the founding of like Reformed Theological Seminary where I went had almost no pastors and if they were pastors, they weren't uh, you know, educated theologians. They're just sort of ordinary guys. Uh, that was it. It was the, the taking it back by the ordinary layman. They didn't have that connection. And there's necessity in that, and we're thankful that they took that stand, but you can also see the damage it's done. Uh, we don't have the elite institutions on our side anymore, um, and we sometimes are suspicious of them. Just sort of a personal anecdote um, I mentioned at one point, you've got to have an education to be a good teacher, but you also have to have one to recognize a good teacher. How many educated clergy have just banged their head against the wall because their congregations are suspect 
of the education, of the learning. I grew up Southern Baptist. If you tell a Southern Baptist that you're really into theology, they don't like you anymore, right? That's a, they're suspicious of that. They don't trust that kind of learning. And especially when you get into the charismatic world, they take it as a point of pride not to be educated. And that has done great damage. Our churches are going to have to be involved in Christian education. Different ways to do it, different models. I'm not going to tell you one size to fit all. But the church has got to want that vision. It's got to want its people to be educated. It's got to want to put qualified men into positions to make this happen. I think you would agree with me that we have a bit of an educational crisis in America. Some bright spots, some points on the rise, but by and large, it's not looking too good. And if you just pump money into the current system, it's probably not going to get any better. We're going to have to think outside of the box, new models, new styles of education. And we've seen the folly of separating education from spiritual religious things. We've got to get back to putting them together again. And it can't be a retreat from education. We'll create Christian schools that teach a lot of Bible but don't do a good job with the classics. It's got to be both. It's got to be Christians taking control over the best learning. Our great reform and Puritan institutions have fallen away. That's true. But we've got to keep the vision and either take them back or create new ones, as the reformers did, but create new ones that are competitive, that are as good as the old ones used to be. And we've got to do this not just for ourselves to feel smart and have a sophisticated culture, but if we are to preserve the ministry of the gospel over time. If you want the projects that the ACCS the CREC and other groups are building. If you want those to last, you're going to have to have people in those places that believe in the vision, are willing to build it and perpetuate it and continue it once the current leadership moves on or dies. If not, we'll be right back to where we started. How can we keep the Sabbath? How can we maintain the ministry of the gospel? We must maintain the schools. We must maintain the culture of learning. This must be a central, integrated conviction of our communities. All right. Questions, comments, feedback? A practical application to, you know, you know, you're talking about these guys going out and uh, be, becoming involved in the universities and building up and really, in quite a few of the cases, you were saying reforming the existing universities. It wasn't mm-hmm. starting a, a new school, it was going in. Yet, in, in our day, we probably go and say, oh, we're going to create our own school. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to send our kids to Veritas to, or you know, let's build a good Christian school or let's right. homeschool. Which seems counter to what I'm hearing you say <laughs> there. You know, should we be rethinking and, and looking at a broader, broader view and saying it's time for us to get involved in the public school system and reform <laughs> that? 
Well, um, we can't do the same things the reformers did on the public school level. And that's a great question. We have to be honest with ourselves because we no longer have a society that thinks of the Christian magistrate as the protector of the spiritual teachings. You know, One of the negative side effects, I think modernity and liberalism is a mixed bag. You know, There's a lot of good stuff that came out of that. But one of the definite losses was the fragmentation of learning and values. And so, yeah, when the, America was founded, they didn't do this all at one time, but eventually they kind of came to the position that, all right, religion and spiritual things, people will just take care of that on their own. That'll just be, they'll handle that. And so we're not going to give the political legal realm uh, jurisdiction over that. Now, you know, in our day and age, sometimes we have to use that to our advantage. You know, hey, state, you can't come mess with us, so we'll, we'll take use of what they gave us. But that did mean the public schools were bound for failure. You know, when you have a school system that is by design incapable of teaching spiritual matters, then, yeah, it's not going to last. There have been better and worse times in history. Um, who knows? Maybe, you know, uh, Betsy DeVos will come up with some new idea. You know, there'll be some options. I don't know. I don't want to write things off. But the current public system is not, it can't receive what we want to give it. We would break it or it would break us. But can you or would it be a good idea to, you know, send guys into Princeton, rally around Robert George or some of these guys and, you know, take over Princeton? That'd be pretty good. Yeah, you know, <laughs> if you could do it, right? Uh, if you could take back some of these institutions, that would be huge. Uh, you know, Southern Baptists, they're one of the few mainline denominations, weird to even call them that, but big denominations that did that. They were losing, they were failing, they were on the edge, and then through a nice, you know, uh, Providence, Al Mohler gets positioned at the seminary and, you know, turns it around. So I think it would be great if we can do things like that. We should think of ways to do it. Um, but the Reformers did make new schools too, so it isn't like only one or the other. The key, though, is our new schools have to really be good, <laughs> be real, and they need to be integrated with the whole of society. They can't just be a consumer niche option, you know, one more offering on the market. They need to be presented as an integrated engine of a culture we're working on. Yeah, so, question about, I guess, roles and roles for education. Mm-hmm. So, we talked this morning about the, the breakfast uh, and even uh, earlier as well about, you know, girls being trained and women being educated in order to be able to teach their kids. So, that kind of all automatically flies in the face of the caricature of, I don't even know why I send my girls to school because they're just going to go. Right. So, you've already answered that. <laughs> but the idea then of the other extreme that you're talking about where it's like they set up public schools for everyone to be able to go and learn. And then you talked about, I'm not saying you, you put the two together, but then you said, Teaching Latin, Greek, Hebrew, all the classics, everything like that. So let's call that the other extreme, where everyone in society now has a master's degree. Yeah. So is there that idea, though, of, or I guess talk about this, that idea of goals for education, what would be the, say, a baseline education versus I want to go into engineering, or I want to be a farmer, or I want to be that doctor that you talked about? Sure, yeah, great question. And. You know, I would need to appeal to the, you know, the administrators and guys who have actually had to wrestle with this more concretely to give you a, a great answer. But I'd like to think you know, a good engineer is going to understand all of the other basic principles of these disciplines. He's not a specialist, 
but he knows a little bit about how this stuff works. What's the knock on engineers? You know, apologies if you're an engineer in the room, right? But they're kind of a they're kind of a stereotypical personality, right? Like he's kind of an engineer, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, they kind of presented as robotic, rigid, and they don't, you know, they don't have that same, uh, you know, sort of smooth, cozy personality, and you know. <laughs> That may not be true, but you all know that is a stereotype, right? The engineer is the business guy, nuts and bolts, cut through the mess and just get the job done. And that's an unfortunate view of things. You know, what if the engineer also did have a competency in literature and philosophy, not a specialization, but a competency? Um, and when it comes to, you know, the the powers that be who engineer our lives. You know, what if those guys actually had well-rounded imaginations? You know, that'd be good. So that's the vision. I'm not sure exactly you know, the key to make it happen. Likewise, you should not have nutty professors who just you know, spend all their time reading weird books and don't have any clue how to run their lives. You know, that contributes to the destruction of education. When you say, you know, my professors are all just nutcases. Can't even balance a checkbook. Well, then you don't actually respect them and don't think what they're teaching you is really that good. So that fragmentation has to be overcome. Now, how do we do it? Yeah, that's a big challenge. In one of Luther's treatises, he actually, I laughed, you know, said, hey, they only have to go to school a couple hours each day. <laughs> so, so, you know, he had a vision of you get in, you do what you need to do, then you go home and you could do the other work, the craves, the crafts. So probably um, our idea of what a school is We'll need to be flexible. We should have time when kids are kind of dismissed to go work manually, to go play. Um, the school I helped found in Jackson, for instance, was a hybrid model. You're only on campus two or three times a week. Then you would study at home. It was still a school. There was a faculty, administration. They gave you your work, but you would work at home. And that was kind of attractive, I thought. You know, hey, it gives you the freedom to do things a little different if you want your more agrarian lifestyle model without sacrificing the academics. Uh, I thought that was good. So, yeah, um, these guys are writing what they call home economy. Alan Carlson, Wendell Berry, when he's not being crazy, and other guys. They have a lot of neat things to offer. Recovering the home as a center of activity, not just a hotel to sleep in when you get home, but, you know, make stuff there, have things going on, bringing people in and out of your homes. I think that's got to be connected to education. It can't just be go to this building called a school all day. What, what are you, you encouraged by at the university level? What, I mean, you mentioned founding the school. Um, do you see some uh, things that are happening that you'd like to double down on, or do you, do you see the need for different things? Yeah, the school that I myself was involved with was not a university. It was an um, elementary to high school project. So uh, that's what we did. The university world, I think there's a big question there. Is it the model that we have right now viable? Um, and so I think being imaginative and sort of brave to do these projects like New St. Andrews and other things where you – you know, you're rethinking what campus housing means. You're rethinking what sports and uh, spirit decor, you know, are all. How does that work today? Yeah, we're going to have to be creative there. Uh, we can't just assume that the model that's out there exists. Funding is a big deal. You know, how are you going to pay for this stuff? Um, there's too much all going to kind of centralized admin, eating things up. Um, 
And a lot of education, higher education, is just not even in the same planet as what we're trying to do. You know, classical education, broad humanities, that's on the decline nationally. You know, most universities are downsizing that stuff and are emphasizing just the engineering, the science, and the arts, or these boutique gender studies, you know, post-colonial resistance movement. That stuff is hip. Um, so I'm down on that. And I'd be very careful and selective as to which schools I would send children to or support. Um, another element, though, maybe Pastor Strawberry's had to think about some others. If you're going to send your children to a university, you've got to think that big picture. Where are they going to live? What sort of churches here? What sort of communities around? The school by itself can't do all of that. It's got to be integrated. So we're going to have to be careful as to which ones we want to support and send our kids to. Um, but then when we find them, we should champion them. Rally the troops, rah, rah. Absolutely. Right. Which is a great argument for why our our churches have got to work together. As we fragment more and more, it just becomes everybody for themselves. Not to demean, you know, I may turn off the recorder here, and not to demean other denominations, but where I live, um, there is a particular Presbyterian denomination that's conservative, evangelical. They would have the same confession of faiths, but they have little to no interest in Christian schools. There's pretty much public schools the way to go. And those churches are big, three, four, five hundred, a lot of money there. If those churches actually believed in this vision and used some of their resources to Christian ed, you'd see more options. 
you start seeing scholarship opportunities, tuition would go down. These hybrid models reduce the overhead. You're not paying as much. If we actually, enough people bought this and worked together, we could come up with some good stuff. But as it is, it's only one or two of us here and there, and we're sort of left to make it all by ourselves. So I agree with that challenge. I think churches need to get serious. Pastors and leaders need to preach it and teach it. They need to put their money where their mouth is and help people. Um, but then in the meantime, yeah, can we create alternatives? So yes, absolutely. Um, that ordinary culture of the family. Um, parents have a lot of power over this, right? Do you laugh and roll your eyes at the business of schooling? Okay, we've got to do it, but you know, I'm no good at that. And it's such a, such a challenge. Is that the way you talk about it? So your kids learn that? And they go, okay, I have to do it, but eventually I won't anymore. Or are you excited about it? You know, you're kind of pitch it to your kids, and you're talking about the stuff that comes up in this material passionately. Things like that are also changers. You know, they get the kids' attention. Okay. We had some very good friends in Jackson, and they were just, you know, they just talk about Jane Austen over lunch just for fun, you know. And that's weird. Nobody does that. And after hanging out with them for a while, you know, that kind of became normal. We talk about some neat movie or some piece of music, and that it just worked into who we were. So maybe that is one way to help fill the gap. All right. Thank you so much, Stephen.